Good afternoon, and welcome to Outer Cape News on WOMR. My name is Matthew Dunn. This is your update on what's happening on the Lower and Outer Cape, drawing on stories reported in the pages of the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. In this week's edition, Beth Dunn has the story of the announcement of this year's Tim McCarthy Human Rights Champion, as well as a story about a lawsuit brought against several Truro officials regarding voter registration disputes and the delayed special town meeting. I've got stories about ongoing dysfunction in Wellfleet town government and Provincetown Select Board's endorsement of Magic Mushrooms. And Ira Wood is here with his matter of opinion about the Jewish Christmas tree. A civil lawsuit against several Truro officials regarding the appointment of registrars, the removal of names from the voter rolls, and the postponement of a special town meeting has been rejected by Orleans District Court Judge Welsh. The suit, filed on November 2nd by Truro voters Peter Herridge and Stephanie O'Neill, sought a declaratory judgment, an injunction, and $49,000 in attorney's fees and damages. The defendants in the suit are town manager Darren Tangeman, moderator Paul Wazotsky, town clerk Elizabeth Verdi, and select board chair Kristen Reed, as well as the board of registrars and select board as entities. Herridge and O'Neill were represented by Michael Oliverio, who himself was one of the people recently struck from the Truro voter rolls after he failed to appear at a hearing before the board of registrars. Herridge and O'Neill asked the court to declare that the select board's temporary appointment of two Republican registrars was illegal and that the registrar's subsequent decisions were illegitimate. The suit stated that the actions were designed to avoid the defeat of warrant articles related to the development of $35 million for a public works facility and a housing project at the Walsh property adjacent to Truro Central School. The suit was filed as an ex parte emergency motion, meaning that the plaintiffs wanted the judge to rule without the defendants being notified. When asked about the suit last week, at least one town official was not aware it had been filed. The plaintiffs were seeking a 10-day temporary restraining order to stop the voter challenge hearings until there was a properly constituted board of registrars. The plaintiffs filed the case on November 2nd, and Judge Welsh heard it the same day. He denied all the plaintiffs' motions. During the proceedings, attorney Oliverio claimed to be representing two challenged voters, but Herridge was not among the 67 challenges heard by the registrars. There were other factual errors in Oliverio's statements to the court. Although Oliverio told the judge that the originally scheduled October 21st town meeting was canceled on the spur of the moment in response to voter sentiment opposing the two key agenda items, In fact, the decision to continue the meeting was announced days earlier and arose from the voter registration challenges and the resulting threat to the meeting's integrity. 
The disputes over the facts in the case were never addressed, however, as Judge Welsh suggested that the suit had likely been filed in the wrong court. He said that district courts typically do not hear cases concerning voting or elections. The proper venue for the case was likely Superior Court, according to Welsh. For now, the status of the Harridge and O'Neill lawsuit remains open. According to a clerk at Orleans District Court, that will change only when a plaintiff calls for it to be dismissed. In the meantime, Oliverio did not say whether he plans to refile the suit in Superior Court. In Brewster, the 15-acre property that's been home to Great Cape Herbs since 1991, along with Snowy Owl Coffee Roasters, Fair and Just Kitchen, and on-the-trail electric bikes, is for sale for $4 million. A cooperative of friends is trying to raise enough money to buy the property to preserve as much of it as possible as a community space, arboretum, and a place for quiet contemplation. The herb shop is directly across Route 6A from Foster Square and adjacent to Ace Hardware in the commercial center of Brewster. Stephen Brown has owned the land since 1972 and opened the Great Cape Herb Spice and Tea Company in 1991. The building fronts 15 acres of trails, woods, and plantings. After 50 years of running assorted businesses, Brown wanted to transfer the land to a co-op, but that got complicated when Brewster gave the property a number of code violations in April of 2022. After protracted negotiations with the town, Brown decided to move to his other home in the Azores and left the co-op to finish dealing with the town. The co-op has raised some money from $200 memberships, but is still far short of the $4 million they need. So the focus has changed to find a big donor, developer, or organization to partner with. The 15 acres grades into wetlands and abuts the rail trail. It contains herb gardens, an orchard, berry plantings, specimen trees, an open area, and various sheds and buildings, some of which will be removed. Since Brown left for the Azores, the co-op has been maintaining the land and dealing with the town to wrap up any remaining issues. The co-op wants the businesses to remain and is working with Brown to extend their leases. The restaurant lease is up at the end of this year, and the Snowy Owl lease expires in December 2024. The goal is to extend both through 2025. Sewer mains were due to be installed starting this week on a stretch of Main Street in Orleans from Tonsett Road to Meeting House Road. Those plans have been delayed in light of concerns from the Orleans Chamber of Commerce about how the timing of the work would impact small businesses in the area. The closure would have resulted in traffic being rerouted around the proposed sewer area up Tonsett Road and down Meeting House Road, a distance of about a mile. Instead, Kevin Galligan of the Select Board said on Monday that work will be done on side streets off of Main Street, including Loomis Lane, Cheney Road, and Monument Road. There are six local retailers and restaurants in the proposed Main Street stretch as well as a number of other professional offices. Judy Lindell, the chamber's executive director, estimated that closing Main Street, as originally planned, would have seriously cut into local businesses' crucial holiday revenue. 
Lindell said she and other chamber members were notified just before Thanksgiving of the proposed Main Street work, prompting her to ask the town to request that the project contractor delay the work until after January 1st. Galligan said the town will incur some small expense in the form of a project change order by putting off the Main Street work, but he said it's a small cost to pay to address the needs of local businesses in the area. Shops throughout Orleans hope to get a boost today as the town hosts a holiday stroll from 4 to 8 p.m. More than 40 businesses will stay open a little later than usual to offer visitors a taste of nighttime holiday shopping. Lindell said the idea to organize the stroll grew out of discussion among chamber members about how to better support local shops and restaurants during the holiday season, a critical time of year for many small, independent businesses. During the stroll hours, local businesses will offer their own deals and incentives for shoppers. And shoppers can enter a raffle for a chance to win $1,000 in local gift cards. In the long term, the Chamber hopes that some momentum might be built to better support those local businesses that want to be open later on a more regular basis. Lindell said it will take a strong, coordinated effort among the town's local businesses to create more shopping options for residents and visitors into the evening hours. And Gina Lithcott has been named the 2023 Tim McCarthy Human Rights Champion. She'll receive the award at a breakfast hosted by the Barnstable County Human Rights Advisory Commission on January 8th. The award is named for the late AIDS activist Tim McCarthy, who battled homophobia with his documentary filmmaking. The recognition comes in honor of Lithcott's years of work on black women's health, education, and civil rights. She spent nine years on the Provincetown School Committee and has been a central planner of the town's Juneteenth events. Lithcott credits a long list of teachers and mentors who helped shape her views on social change, including her wife, Billy Avery, who received a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant for her work revolutionizing black women's health care in 1989. Lithcott and Avery met almost 40 years ago at a meeting of the Black Women's Health Project, an initiative Avery had just started. The new approach to addressing public health arose from sessions at the 1983 First National Conference on Black Women's Health Issues, an event Avery organized at Spelman College and which was the subject of a November 11th story in the New York Times. The couple lived together in their Provincetown home with their two cats and an art collection that tells the story of their individual and shared histories. For Outer Cape News, this is Beth Dunn. A group of Wellfleet Town staff has written a letter to the select board demanding better control over what they see as the lack of civility during recent board meetings. The letter was read aloud by Director of Community Services Suzanne Grout-Thomas during the board's December 5th meeting and refers to angry disruptions by members of the public and intermittent squabbles between board members that have prolonged meetings and drawn the presence of police officers. 
The letter states that town department heads and staff are increasingly concerned about the level of disrespect and lack of decorum that is permitted at select board meetings. A copy of the letter obtained by the Independent is unsigned, and Thomas told the Independent that many staff members who were involved in drafting the letter did not want to sign it over fear of retribution from members of the board and the public. Thomas later confirmed that Assessor Nancy Vale, Fire Chief Richard Pauley, Harbormaster Will Sullivan, Shellfish Constable Nancy Chavetta, Executive Administrative Assistant Rebecca Eldridge, and Thomas herself were among those who were willing to sign the letter. According to Thomas and Chavetta, as many as 15 staff members attended several meetings in November to write the letter. The impetus came from staff members' increasing concern over board members' inability to protect staff from disgruntled constituents. The letter goes on to say that the select board's failure to support current staff doesn't create a productive, attractive, or even safe work environment for potential new staff members as well as for current staff, nor does it create an atmosphere and working conditions that encourages new people to volunteer for boards and committees and run for elected positions. Thomas believes most town employees support the message of the letter. Thomas told the Independent that town staff began discussing the state of the select board this summer when heated debate about the terms of the town's harbor dredging permit was compounded by a fracturing of the board that ultimately led to its reorganization in July. Wellfleet residents Jude Ahern and Diane Brunt spoke after Thomas read the letter, calling it a veiled attack on their right to free speech. Since June, Ahern has been escorted out of meetings by a police officer at least twice, including on December 5th. Speaking without being recognized by the chair, Ahern has decried the town's handling of its finances and its pursuit of a mitigation plan to dredge the harbor mooring field. Town staff told the Independent that they've received disturbing emails. According to an incident report filed with the Wellfleet Police, Ahern sent Assessor Vale an email on December 5th at 4.30 a.m., the morning before town staff gave the letter to the select board, with the subject line saying, If any of your union employees speak up tonight, be prepared for the consequences. In the December 5th police report, Detective Michael Allen wrote that Ahern has been initiating complaints against or public records requests from town staff of nearly every department in Wellfleet, and that Vale and other staff have felt for some time now that they're working under duress and no longer feel safe working in town hall. Whether town officials have the power to heed the town staff's demand falls between tricky lines established by a recent state Supreme Judicial Court case. Last March, the court unanimously ruled that civility rules in public meetings violate free speech rights codified in the Massachusetts Constitution. The case followed the Southborough Select Board's silencing of a member of the public for violating the meeting's policy, which stated that all remarks and dialogue in public meetings must be respectful and courteous, free of rude, personal, or slanderous remarks. The court found the policy unconstitutional. Government bodies can still set rules regarding the time, 
place, and duration of comments at public hearings. Wellfleet Select Board members told The Independent that the staff letter is a wake-up call to readdress the public comment policy. Chair Barbara Carboni said that while she's tried to balance the right of free speech with the need of the board to conduct town business, the time has come to make the distinction between speech content and speech conduct. She said it's unacceptable that the tenor of meetings has discouraged the participation of people who want no part of it. Also at the December 5th meeting, the Wellfleet Select Board unanimously voted to execute a one-year contract with the auditing firm Powers & Sullivan to perform the town's fiscal 2023 audit. The town invited bids in hope of contracting a new municipal auditor last year, but it only received one response from Powers & Sullivan, which has been the town's auditing firm for 27 years. Town Administrator Rich Waldo recommended that the board renew the firm's contract for another year. Select board members expressed reservations about extending the contract. Ryan Curley cited a recommendation from the Department of Revenue's report last year that suggested hiring a new auditing firm every three years. Waldo said that a new bidding process could potentially delay the completion of the 2023 audit. The firm is expected to make a presentation on the Fiscal 22 audit in January. A new housing needs assessment for Orleans sets a goal of creating 300 additional year-round housing units in town over the next 10 years. A draft overview of the assessment was presented to the Select Board on November 29th by Laura Smead of J.M. Goldson, the firm hired to help the town create the assessment. The town last conducted a housing assessment in 2017. That study recommended that 100 new housing units be created over 10 years, and Smead said the town is well on its way to meeting that goal. The new document recommends that the town take a multi-pronged approach to creating new units. That could include changes to local zoning to allow more multifamily density, smaller homes in residential areas, and the creation of accessory dwelling units. The town could also create rental assistance programs and grant programs to incentivize the creation of ADUs or the conversion of commercial properties to housing. While 300 more units would help ease the town's housing crunch, the figure still falls far short of the 500 to 600 units Orleans will need to fully meet its housing needs by 2030 that was projected by the UMass Donahue Institute. And even that estimate might be short of the town's actual need. Select Board Chair Michael Herman noted that in 2017, the Affordable Housing Trust Fund Board figured the town needed between 800 and 900 new units. A final version of the assessment will be presented to the Select Board in January. Select Board member Kevin Galligan said the timing of the assessment could put the town on track to possibly take action in time for May's annual town meeting. 
Provincetown this week became the seventh Massachusetts community to move towards effectively decriminalizing psychedelic plants and fungi such as psilocybin or magic mushrooms and ayahuasca. The Provincetown Select Board voted to approve a resolution on Monday that instructs police officers to deprioritize cases involving psilocybin, calls for statewide decriminalization, and for the Cape and Islands District Attorney to cease prosecution of people possessing, cultivating, or distributing psychedelic plants. The board voted 3-1, to one, with member Leslie Sandberg abstaining and Chair Dave Abramson voting against the measure. Provincetown joins Somerville, Cambridge, Northampton, East Hampton, and Salem, where elected officials have passed resolutions directing their respective municipal employees to no longer use resources towards the arrest and investigation of people growing and non-commercially sharing psilocybin mushrooms. In Worcester, the plants are decriminalized for veterans and first responders only, and the Amherst Town Council passed a resolution supporting decriminalization. Supporters say small doses of psilocybin can help people suffering from addiction, mental health issues, cluster headaches, and other medical issues. Some also tout recreational uses of the plants, which they say can bring people together for a spiritual experience, but unlike other drugs, are non-addictive. John Golden, vice chair of the Provincetown Board, said psychedelics could help address the opioid and mental health crises which have hit Cape Cod particularly hard. The local action comes against the backdrop of an initiative petition that could go before voters next fall to decriminalize psychedelic plants statewide. The group Bay Staters for Natural Medicine has pushed for these local resolutions and is supporting bills in the state legislature which would legalize some psychedelic plants and fungi for people ages 21 and up and open up use of the so-called plant medicine to individuals ages 18 and older. The Provincetown resolution does not authorize any commercial sale of psychedelic plants, but supports the bills that seek to set up a license structure for therapists. All five of the Provincetown Select Board members said they recognized the medical benefits and were supportive of decriminalizing psilocybin to be used by medical professionals to treat post-traumatic stress disorder, mental health issues, and addiction, but for the member who abstained, Sandberg said she couldn't support the resolution as written because it would support recreational use. Registration is open for the revamped after-school program at Truro Central School, which is set to begin on January 8th. The program will run on weekdays from 3 to 5.30. Every day, the program will include time for kids to work on homework, snack time, games and sports, a themed enrichment activity, and independent time. Families can sign students up for individual days or the whole week. The program will last until the school year ends in June and the Recreation Department's summer youth program begins. Registration is free and can be completed online at truroRec.com. For Outer Cape News, my name is Matthew Dunn.
I wonder if your family has a little secret, or maybe call it an eccentricity, something that is nobody's business but your own. Ours started many years ago, some days before Thanksgiving, when my wife received a call from her mother, who lived a few hundred miles away. Come down here, her mother demanded. Soon, she insisted. I have something to give you, and most mysteriously, you have to take the car. What exactly does your mother want to give you, I asked. My wife couldn't even guess. Why the hurry? She insisted it had to be before Christmas, my wife said. But your mother is Jewish. Many things about her mother were a complete mystery to my wife. What was important was that she was aging, and there might not be many visits left. As soon as we arrived, she started rooting through the back of a closet, pushing aside old boots and coats and appliances she hadn't used in years. Upon locating an enormous cardboard box, she had me haul it up onto the bed. Dust blew up in a plume. The box flaps crumbled. Careful, she cautioned me. But as soon as I began to dig out the contents, she edged me aside and proceeded to remove them herself. Christmas ornaments wrapped in faded tissue paper, carousel horses, glass bells, snowmen, lace butterflies, nutcrackers, all decades old, all purchased from dime stores, sleighs, Angels blown from glass, candy canes, ballerinas, a winking Cheshire cat. I collected them all, she whispered, every one. Having been raised in an Orthodox Jewish family and having married a Presbyterian, putting up a Christmas tree for my wife's mother was tantamount to a sin. They're all yours now, my mother-in-law beamed at us as we stared at each other, and the old dusty box that was apparently too fragile and too precious to check into the baggage compartment of a plane. More than a box of trimmings, this was my mother-in-law's treasure to bequeath, and giving them away just didn't seem right. But Christmas ornaments? I wasn't observant, but I was bar mitzvahed, and I went to Hebrew school, and I always felt I had to be loyal to my Jewish culture. But in an effort to honor my wife's mother, we drove out to Boundbrook Island on a snowy December day and cut down a pitch pine. Spindly and twisted, scarcely five feet tall and needing wires to prop it up, it was a sorry substitute for a traditional balsam fir and surely wasn't in any way a real Christmas tree. As we began unwrapping the ornaments, we couldn't help but to grudgingly admire them, how whimsical they were, how they refracted light and sent colors streaming, how carefully they'd been crafted, how fragile, a big snail blown out of red glass, a puss in boots with a sword and feather cap, an imitation Fabergé egg with rhinestones. As there were many more branches than ornaments, we improvised some of our own, Garlands out of old costume jewelry necklaces, oyster shells painted gold, orphaned earrings. Then we sat back and marveled at how it 
seemed to bring the forest into the living room. How bizarre it seemed to have a bush festooned with toys. How the cats liked to bat at the dangling ornaments and insisted on sleeping underneath it. We didn't tell anybody about it. In fact, we told ourselves it was a pre-Christian symbol, according to our Encyclopedia Britannica, used by ancient Egyptians, Chinese, and even Hebrews to symbolize eternal life, used by pagan Europeans at the New Year to scare away the devil. After the holidays, when we shopped the sales, there were some pretty cool ornaments we couldn't resist. And the following year, we actually added a few strings of lights. For years, we didn't go out and buy a real tree until I was elected selectman and realized it would be a super public embarrassment to be caught poaching pitch pines from town-owned land. But ever since... And for decades now, it's become a tradition. On the weekend after Thanksgiving, we move the furniture, lug out the ornaments, and jump into the truck to buy a tree, always having the same argument about which one's too wide, too tall, too heavy to carry, and too expensive. We're still Jewish. We still light the menorah for Hanukkah. We still have a Seder on Passover and still bless the candles every Friday night. But we also have a big tree in the living room with lights and real ornaments and strings of old jewelry and orphaned earrings. But I'll tell you the truth. I'm still a little squeamish about calling it a Christmas tree. I'm Ira Wood, and that's my opinion. And that does it for this week's edition of Outer Cape News. Thanks go to the Provincetown Independent, the Cape Cod Chronicle, and the Cape Cod Times. Thanks also to Beth Dunn and Ira Wood for their contributions to the program. And thanks to Henry and Jane Fisher and Jacob Greenberg for being sustaining members of Outer Cape News. And now stay tuned for Friday Afternoon Jazz. It's Stirred Not Shaken with Hank and Andy on listener-supported Outermost Community Radio, WOMR.